0: Good morning. I just want to say if you're in grade 6 to 8, there is crew happening in the youth room. So if you fit those grades and ages, go on out. How are you all doing this morning? Good? Excellent? Yes. Great. Good. Um, Let's just take a moment and pray together before we look into the word. Dear God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for the gift of church, God, for the gift of a relationship with you, for the gift of your presence, for the gift of your glory. God, we pray that as we look into your word together, that your spirit would be with us, that we would be drawn closer to you, to your word, to your truth. Your holiness to your love for us. So thank you, God, for the gift of this time that we have together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now we have a lot of ground to cover this morning in this series. I've been tasked with the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. <laughs> it's a lot, right? <laughs> it's a lot. Thank you, Chris, for reading the scripture for us. Thank you so much for doing that. And Chris read from the book of Psalms, um, even though we are in Leviticus and Deuteronomy on our overall arc of our series and looking at the Bible as one unified story that points to Jesus. Um, And so while we are in Leviticus and Deuteronomy today, we're going to specifically kind of pay attention to the tabernacle and what that's all about. And so the Psalms that Chris read for us um, really capture the intent of what we're talking about today, which is God's holiness and our response to it. And again, this is broad strokes here. And because we're taking this broad strokes approach, If there's anything you don't understand or you feel like we're just rushing through something, I want to encourage you to pick up one of those Ask a Question cards at our Welcome Center, write down anything you're confused about or you want to know more about, and fill that out and submit it. Or go on our website and click on the Ask a Question link and submit it that way, and we will do our best to to answer your questions and to bring understanding for you through our podcast. We love talking about the Bible here. We are committed, lifelong learners of the word. And we believe it's important and it's relevant, that it's the living word of God. And so if there's anything we can do to just help bring clarity or understanding, we want to do that. We definitely want to do that. Okay, so last week, Fred spoke about the law. Do you remember this? Yes? And so what do we remember from that? God commanded the Israelites to love him and love others. Love God and love others. Maybe we can say that together. Ready? Love God and love others. Excellent. Thank you. That was good. I had in my mind that I might need you to do it a couple of times, but that was fantastic. Thank you. So all of the six. What is on the screen? Well, they read it with life and enthusiasm. That's what I was looking for up here. So all of the six hundred and thirteen laws can be summed up with these two commands. To love God, love others. Thank you. And God's laws, we know, are for the good of his people because he is good. He is good, and he knows what's best for humanity. So this morning, we're going to break down some of the law that addresses Purity, because it's what God requires if humans want to be found in his presence in the tabernacle. So it's how we show our love for God. We acknowledge his holiness. And so we need cleansing from our sin to be found in his presence. And so Moses and the Israelites have to follow these purity laws that God gives them so that they could receive forgiveness... And then live in communion with God. So remember before the fall, humans were in loving union with God. Fully, fully able to be in his presence. But we know it didn't stay that way. Why? Because humans chose sin. Because humans chose sin. And we know that God is so holy that that can't exist together. So sin separated the humans from God. They can no longer share that same space with God. They're banished then from the garden. Genesis 3 and 24 says this, God forced the man to leave the garden. Then he put cherub, angels, and a sword of fire at the entrance to the garden to protect it the sword flashed around and around, guarding the way to the tree of life. Now, we know, as many of us have been reading in our U-Version Bible plan, and from all the teaching in our series this far, that God just doesn't abandon his people. He loves them. He makes a covenant with Abraham and his descendants and promises to always be there. God. And so then, what we see in the end chapters of Exodus and Leviticus and then throughout Deuteronomy is God creating a place where he can dwell among his people, where his space and humanity's space can begin to overlap again. And this is where the tabernacle that we read about um, in Exodus comes in. The tabernacle was the Lord's tented dwelling place is where his physical presence dwelt among the Israelites as they traveled from Sinai to Canaan. The tabernacle was mobile. It was meant to be so that it could travel with the Israelites through the wilderness. So think about it with me. The holy the holy God of heaven, the creator of and sustainer of the universe, designed this tabernacle, this tent. He gave Moses the instructions on how to build it and complete it, and the people built it faithfully to what he required. But what amazes me is that God does this so that he can live and dwell in the midst of his people, in the midst of the Israelites. He dwells right there with them, his tent in the midst of their tents. God will guide and protect them through the wilderness to the promised land, revealing his glory and his presence in the tabernacle tent through the form of a cloud by day with fire in it by night, the scriptures tells us. So God creates the space where humans can go and be in his presence. Not completely as originally experienced in the garden, but we can see from, script, from the scriptures how the tabernacle was purposefully designed in a way to bring humans back to that garden experience. There's the cherubim. For example, who we gather are a form of angelic beings. In Genesis, the cherubim blocked the entrance to the garden after the fall so that Adam and Eve cannot re-enter and eat from the tree of life. We just shared that verse a moment ago. Well, in the tabernacle, the curtains or the veil that cover each space. The courtyard, the holy place, the holy of holies. Each of these sections had a curtain and a veil to separate their space and on the veil were cherubim. Cherubim. God instructs Moses in Exodus 26:1. You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue, purple, and crimson yarns. You shall make them with cherubim, skillfully woven into them. Like the Garden of Eden was in the east. We learn from Scripture how the tabernacle has an east. Facing entrance, there are parallels between the tree of life in the garden and the tabernacle's lampstand. Um, The tree of knowledge could be paralleled or represented by the law here. We could spend a lot of time just unpacking all of the symbolism um, in the tabernacle. And I encourage you, if you're interested or intrigued by that, to absolutely do that. But what we want to take away from this This morning really is how God's dwelling in the tabernacle here is a temporary form of the restoration of Eden. Now, what about sin and the barrier and separation that it causes between humans and God? Because we know humans are sinful. And we know God is holy So how can they possibly enter the tabernacle, the space where God dwells? Well, it's the purity laws. So the purity laws enable the Israelites to enter into God's space here. They are required, again, and are necessary because of God's holiness. Humans cannot enter into God's presence In their sin. Sin is a barrier. It is a separator. So we know the humans that we've read about so far in Scripture are sinful, right? Not unlike any of us. Not unlike any of us. We all do things that make us impure. Today, it's often our immorality that causes us to sin and become impure. Well, in the Old Testament, the law describes a lot of things that make humans not only morally impure, but ritually impure as well. Things like defiling skin conditions. So think leprosy, or burn, a boil, um, a sore, anything like that. As well as bodily discharges, or coming into contact with a dead body. All of these things are not sins in and of themselves, but they prohibit people from entering the tabernacle, they are basically all associated with mortality and death and the loss of life. So the purity laws then, they provide a way for the Israelites to be cleansed from their impurities, whether morally or ritually, and able to enter into God's presence or space. And this was all done through animal sacrifices. Again, there's a couple of videos on our YouVersion Bible plan that uh, really helps bring understanding and clarity to all of this. And so I can't plug that plan enough. (laughs) It's awesome, and it's never too late to sign up or join it. So not only does sin separate us from God, the price for it is death. So humanity's cleansing from sin and impurity, it costs death so this is where the animal sacrifices come in. It's meant to be a form of payment. The animal dies in place of the human, absorbing the sin. Humans then can enter into the tabernacle. Now, only the high priest was able to enter The Holy of Holies, that is the most holy place. And only once a year at that, on the Day of Atonement, it's called. And this day was for the cleansing from the sins of the whole nation. So much of this, that is the details of the tabernacle and the purity laws and sacrifices, we see repeated when Solomon's temple was built. We can read all about that in 1 Kings chapter 6. And in greater detail then, the tabernacle, the temple then, with its trees and flowers and more images of cherubim, we see how the temple was designed in a way, perhaps even more so, to bring us back to the garden, the place where heaven and earth overlapped, where God's space and our space is a shared space again. So now the tabernacle, the temple, they're both great temporary solutions, but they still could not solve the issue of sin. And while they allowed humans a taste of the garden life that was originally designed for them, it really wasn't the same thing as life in the garden, with that complete freedom to just enjoy fullness of life, with God. We've seen over and over again how sin deeply affects humans, how it brings corruption, how it brings evil, and it has this ripple effect. One sinful act creates this form of vandalism, really. Again, our reading plan used that language this week. Sin becomes like vandalism on other people's lives, and on our world. And so with this in mind then, even the temple, even the temple and the purity system, they too end up being corrupted by sin. To the point where God's presence departs from the temple. It's prior to its destruction, but the Babylonians. We read about that in Ezekiel chapter 10. So sin gets so bad, God's presence departs from the temple. God's not going to honor that which doesn't honor him. So as I've reflected on these passages of Scripture over these past couple of weeks, and in my just... Preparations for this morning. I've been reflecting on how incredible God's holiness is, and how we, <clears throat> not unlike the Israelites, can easily forget that or easily diminish that. I mean, how often do we rush into God's presence without seeking his forgiveness first? Or how often do we put spending time in his presence? How often do we put that off to another day and then another day and then another day? How often do we allow Culture or social media or doctrines like subjectivism or relativism to influence our views on things before actually turning to God's holy word to inform our views on things. I say we because though we live in a different day in a different geographical and cultural setting, I think we, and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone this morning. I'm certainly not doing that. I'm talking the church in general. We, like the Israelites, at times have treated God's holiness casually or irreverently or comfortably instead of with the awe and wonder and gratitude and surrender That he deserves. It's easy for us to say, but you'd think that the Israelites would get it. You'd think that they'd get it, right? I mean, literally seeing God's brilliance in the form of a cloud and fire and plagues and the delivering and the rescuing. Just there are so many examples of God's presence and his sovereignty and power, that it's just undeniable. And still, and all, the impact of sin in the world continues to ripple and vandalize. And human hearts seem to just be incapable of following God's ways. So where does this leave us? Well, we have a group of people who are meant to be God's chosen people who bear his name and his righteousness, who are to be a blessing to the nations who are actually corrupted by sin and who have lost the place where they could dwell with God. That's an unsettling place, isn't it? It's unsettling. Well... The Israelites know what they need. They need that Moses-like figure to show up and restore them to their former glory. And we learned recently from Pastor Jacob that this Moses-like figure is Jesus. You can say that with super confidence. Jesus. This Moses-like figure is Jesus and what we really need to understand today is this Jesus is the only one he's the only one who solves humanity's sin problem he's the only one so let's get to the heart of this truth together in John chapter 1 verse 14 we read these words about Jesus And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now this verse in the original Greek text literally translates as, The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. God tented with Israel in the wilderness, and in Jesus, he pitches his tent with us. Eugene Peterson, in The Message Paraphrase, says it like this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So when Jesus shows up, he changes things. Things change. He begins to heal people of their diseases, and often healing people of the things that made them ritually impure. He heals the demon-possessed, the lepers, the women who bled for 12 years. All these issues prevented these people from entering into the temple. Jesus heals them, not just physically, but socially And spiritually, as they are finally able to enter back into God's presence in the temple. This was the Jerusalem temple at the time. Again, there was a Bible project video on our reading plan a few days ago that explained how Jesus is the embodiment of God's holiness And so instead of humans being unable to enter into God's presence because of their impurity, it's a barrier. Jesus, God's holiness embodied, touches the impure, transfers his purity and holiness then to these impure humans and makes them holy and pure again. Jesus then becomes the one who forgives sins, His very words had the power to forgive sin. We see that in the New Testament. There are examples where he just speaks the words, your sins are forgiven. All of his physical healing miracles point to and confirm his authority to heal people spiritually. Jesus is God incarnate, Jesus is God in the flesh. He has the power to forgive. He has the power to forgive sin. John the Baptist recognizes him and prophetically declares it, saying, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you. All the sacrifices and bloodshed that happens in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of the blood of Jesus that will be shed on the cross on that day of atonement where his sacrificial death covers the sins of the world. Jesus offers his life as a sacrifice for the sin of all humanity. I can't explain it any better than scripture can. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, we read these words. And I couldn't just pick out a verse. <laughs> so it's kind of long. Bear with me. Close your eyes if you want to, but it's important. It's the heart of what we're speaking about today. Starting at verse 11. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins." That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. Now when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, This blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals." For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again, ever since the world began." But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting For him. Jesus pays the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He makes us pure and holy and acceptable and able to be in God's presence. Now, something else of significance here, when Jesus dies, that temple veil, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, that place where God's presence was brightest and purest, the curtain that literally sectioned off God's presence is torn in two. We read in Matthew, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit, and the veil of the Holy of Holies of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So that curtain that was lined in cherubim, those angelic beings that blocked the entranceway back into the garden, is now gone. God's people no longer need this physical temple to be with God and their inability to remain impure no longer will continue to disqualify them from entering into the presence of God because Jesus is now our high priest and he accomplished the death and the sacrifice for us when he died on the cross. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins providing forgiveness and the ability to be found in his holy presence. Praise God. Praise God. Now, God says to us in his word, both in the Old Testament and again in the New Testament, he tells us, he says to us, be holy for I am holy. So as a people who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, as people who are a part of the new covenant, we are to be set apart. That hasn't changed. We are to be Christ's image in our world. We are to reflect his holiness. And as we've learned how the consummation of the whole law is about... Loving God and loving others. We know that Jesus upholds this. This doesn't change. And so I'm drawn to Corinthians, where it teaches us about love. Perhaps you'd like to read it with me. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. is the face of holiness. This is how we live out holiness in our world. We have help. We have each other, right, on our holiness journey. More importantly, we have the gift of God's Holy Spirit living within us, leading, guiding, prompting every step of the way. Now, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. Perhaps we can recap it all like this. God is holy. He is holy. In Jesus, we can be made holy. When we give our lives to Jesus, we become living temples where he dwells with us by his Spirit. His Holy Spirit helps us to keep this very command. His Holy Spirit helps us to be faithful and obedient to his word. His Holy Spirit equips us to follow his ways, to do what he's called us to do and to be his image in our world. I think I want to finish with this. We've talked a lot about our depravity, right? And sin and just the depravity of it. Remember, God's glory filled the temple. His glory filled the temple. His glory fills us. It fills us. When we live in Jesus and choose to follow his ways, God's glory, it fills us. Don't diminish that. Don't diminish that. That is not a small thing. That is a huge, huge thing. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to pray together. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word today. Thank you, God, because in your word we learn about who you are. We learn your holiness. Forgive us, God, for the times that we have casually treated your holiness for the times that we've dismissed it or rushed into your presence without even just considering, God, how holy you are. So as people who love you this morning, God, we ask that you would come, that you would forgive us from sin, that you would fill us with your presence and your glory. God, we don't want to be found without your presence. It is an unsettling, unsettling place to be. And so as your church, as your people here gathered today, we pray that your presence would rest on us and fill us and cover us and go before us and guide us in all things. God, help us to always be aware of your holy presence, always and help us to be faithful to you and your word to what you've called us to be help us to be reflection of your holiness help us to love you and love others to the best of our ability and as we worship you as we leave this place as we go through the day to day god we pray that we do it with an awareness of your holiness and your presence and your glory at work in us. Thank you for my church family today. I just pray your blessing over them and your presence to rest on each one here and that we would together faithfully walk with and in your holy presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.